This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today we are going to talk travel and the patchwork of COVID regulations now in place. The intention is clear to discourage travel and to try to prevent more COVID from coming through our borders. But the results? Not so much. To prevent a March break surge, direct flights to the Caribbean and Mexico have been banned, but uh, we can take an American airline with a short stopover. And to me, this is another example of a regulation having a possibly unintended consequence of disadvantaging a Canadian company and giving a leg up to an American one. Uh, Same thing happened with the big box stores and the fact that they were allowed to stay open. Now, Air Canada, in the meantime, by the way, has just laid off another 1,500 employees and temporarily suspended 17 routes. The government now will require a negative test from people crossing the border, uh, uh, driving across the border, and not just from those who fly. But the failure to present that test at a land border crossing will result in a fine not being refused entry. And there's no three-day $2,000 quarantine in a government-sanctioned hotel there either, uh, which, by the way, has some snowbirds really mad despite all the warnings. So what do you think of all of this? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Marty Firestone, the president of Travel Secure, a travel insurance company and airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, Carl Moore. Thanks so much and welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Okay, let us begin with Dr. Moore. Uh, in terms of this loophole where there are no direct flights allowed from here, but anybody can hop on an American flight, is is there any way for the government to close that loophole? I guess they could, uh, you know, uh, theoretically, at least by letting the airlines, U.S. airlines, say you can't fly people through. Now, to a certain degree, there's a civil rights issue that if you fly me to New Jersey and I decide to get in a plane and fly to Mexico, what is what is it is the business of the U.S.? I think it'd be, in theory, possible. I think it'd be practically tough to do. And if you're allowing uh, Canadians to fly down to the States, and, you know, we have a huge relationship with the country, many, many Canadians live there and go there for the, uh, for the winter, I think it'd be really hard to do on a practical level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marty, do you know of clients who uh, want to take a March break and who are just going that way? We had a caller, you know, tell everybody on the air that's what he was going to do. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, this latest restriction or when it does go into place, or actually the, the, the airline suspension did already, they're finding other ways of going down, but not the one-week March break. I think they quelled that issue real quickly because people weren't going to start COVID test down, COVID test back, 14-day quarantine. So that one weaker is finished with. But the snowbird has found his way many ways to get down to the Caribbean, Mexico, and for that matter, the U.S., where the flights aren't suspended. Yeah. Uh, I, in, in a bit, I will share a very interesting email I got this morning from from a snowbird. But uh, um, again, Carl Moore, do you see this? We we what we're seeing with Air Canada and other uh, local carriers, they are undoubtedly in negotiations with the government. They're being, uh, you know, they're, they're being devastated by all of this. Uh, they seem to be some kind of standstill because uh, the government is saying, we're not going to give you money until you give refunds. Do you see the government rules as disadvantaging them even more? No, absolutely. I think the Canadian government has not done a great job for the Canadian airline industry and therefore for Canadians. 
When you look at what's happened in the U.S., EU, parts of Asia, and the Middle East, a number of the countries would compare ourselves have done a better job in terms of supporting the airline industry. And ironically, we live in the second largest country in the world after Russia, and it's incredibly, relatively underpopulated compared to China or the U.S. or something, where you don't want to drive from Toronto to Vancouver unless it's a, a long planned vacation. You don't go out there for an hour meeting or two. So, and we need tourism for our economy, and we need a lot of Canadian business people going down to the U.S. and American business people coming up here. So it's really important, and um, it's something Ottawa has not really stepped up to the plate. <clears throat> now, what, what Air Canada and WestJet have done to some degree to turn up heat, rightly have cancelled flights to much of the Maritimes and uh, other parts of Canada, including Quebec City, where my wife's from, from a business viewpoint. There just simply wasn't enough business, and you're losing money in every flight. But also, I think the the nice side benefit from their viewpoint of is that it raised the heat in Ottawa because you had premiers and mayors phoning Ottawa saying, can you get on with it? Can you do something? So I think it's something where they're both, uh, the airlines are somewhat negotiating through the media. Okay, well, yeah. Um, let's bring in Gabor Lukash. He is a passenger rights ac- um, activist, advocate, and pre- um, uh, Gabor, hello. <laughs> Sorry about that. Good afternoon. So what, what do you make of the fact that that Canadian passengers, we can't take a flight down to the Caribbean or Mexico, but uh, we can hop on an American plane and do just that, just with a little well, stopover? Uh, I, I, as for American Airlines are concerned, they have sufficient demand possibly through their American hubs. In terms of um, shutting down those flights, I think the, the government made the right decision. Uh, certainly, there could be tighter decisions. Uh, and the, the point was not to, it was not a prohibition. Airlines weren't told you cannot fly as a binding order, but rather there was an agreement reached between the airlines and the government. And I'm quite sure the airlines did receive something one way or another in return. I've just listened to, to what Carl had to say, and, and uh, certainly, um, given the size of, the, of uh, Canada, the physical size of Canada, the geographical size of Canada, we, we are not disputing for even a single moment that uh, airlines are important. What is a concern that airlines that disobey the law, they can in the long run be more burdened than benefit because they're not internationally competitive. Even if somehow Canadian consumers may put up with what airlines are doing, the fiasco around refunds, which is really, a, I, I would be inclined to be more as a form of theft than doing business as usual, international consumers who have a choice, who can go to American Airlines, for example, so they're taking their business there. In our Facebook group, I'm seeing a number of people commenting, well, if I will ever be able to fly again, uh, if I will be able to help it, I will be flying with an American airline because there I will get a refund when the flight is canceled by the airline. So uh, in, in that context, the, the, the government is doing a disservice to airlines, not simply by not giving them bail which I think is, is, is a whole separate issue, uh, whether it should be given in what form, whether it should be a form of equity or other form, but also in terms of not having told them right from the beginning that you absolutely must immediately refund passengers so that your reputation, your passenger goodwill will be preserved. That's a far higher asset. That's, that's the most important asset an airline, any business that takes money in advance can have. If people lose their faith in them getting service in exchange for uh, the money they pay in advance, they will not make bookings. Well, uh, my understanding is that that's the holdup, that the government is saying you've got to give refunds before we give you a bailout, and that that is not happening, Carl. Something where it's not black and white in the law and what they have to do in terms of that from a viewpoint of Michael Rousseau, who is the incoming CEO and, the, and currently CFO of Air Canada, or the equivalent at WestJet, they're in deep financial trouble. They have business which has fallen apart in a way we've not seen in aviation history. If they're not required to give back billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars of cash flow, you don't do it if you're not required to. What they've done is give people uh, you know, flight vouchers. And the government, I think, is rightly, and Gabor is right, that this impacts a lot of people. They should um, give it back, but they don't want to from a financial viewpoint. What they're looking for is government support, which will effectively 
give that money through their lines back to the people who are owed it, and I think that's the right thing to do. But what they're using is a negotiating point with the government because they're trying to bring pressure on the government to come to some a settlement. And the government, I think, rightly is, is saying this is an issue which is a stick point for them, as it should be, and are pushing on that. So I think that's a central issue. And I think Gabor is right that, that the money should be paid back or a voucher, which you willingly take, maybe because it's worth more money, but you willingly take it as opposed to you're required to take it. Would make sense. Well, uh, we've heard a lot of stories of people saying, you know, I'd take the voucher if it was easy to redeem the voucher, but the terms on the voucher make it uh, prohibitive. Uh, Marty, have your clients complained about that? Very much so. Although I, I'm getting the feeling that they are opening these up a bit. That I think Sunlink said good till 2026, and this one said that. But the basic feeling from my clientele is they paid the money, they want it back. This also comes up with trip cancellation and interruption too. There's just there's just huge issues with voucher credits versus physical refund of money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gabor, um, how many complaints do you have that uh, over and above the fact that people want their money back that that those vouchers are very difficult to re- redeem or can be? You see, vouchers will not buy you food in the grocery store. It will not help you to pay your mortgage. Will not pay help pay your utility bills. It's not money. It's not uh, official. It's not a legal tender. It was confirmed by the transport minister back in May. So I, I don't accept this idea that the corporation, no matter how much hardship it is facing, can force vouchers on passengers. Just imagine that as someone were stealing your car, but they leave you a voucher that in two years I will give it back to you. Promise. That's would still be theft. The person would still be going to jail. I don't see how it would be different for airlines. The law is perfectly clear. I'd like to differ with Carl on this. And um, Carl may be overlooking provincial laws. For example, he's, I believe, calls in Quebec, Quebec Consumer Protection Act, um, sections 54.1 and onwards. It makes it very, very clear that, that there's no need to compensate passengers for the inconvenience. But if service wasn't rendered, service was paid in, in advance, in the future, for future services, that money has to go back to passengers, fair and square, in the same form, same form of the payment. And there's really no question there. What I'm finding so troubling is we are seeing a meltdown of consumer protection, a complete breakdown of consumer protection. And to restore that level of, of consumer confidence is going to take many years, while what the government could have done and should have done is right in March and April, when you look at the uh, U.S. example or the EU example, they made it absolutely clear that they, the airlines that they have to refund passengers in, right away as quickly as possible. And it was made clear, in, in, in fact, in the European Union, the Union even went against its own states and sued its own states to enforce the law because uh, they understood what the Canadian government seems to be not understanding, that money you can provide later to airlines. But if you have an airline that has already tarnished its own brand, there's no money in the world that is going to rescue it. Hmm. Well, I guess it depends on what kind of alternatives we have for, for travel, uh, because if, if this, depending on how much of this sticks or for how long, is going to be very difficult to uh, go to those places that we want to go to. I'd like to give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from people. Did the government's latest travel restrictions make you change your mind? I know last week we we had a guy who's saying, no way, I'm going to go through the States. I'm going to take my Caribbean holiday. Uh, so have, have, have you changed your mind or rethought or are you going somewhere Anyway, and what do you think about all of this patchwork of rules? So the, the, for instance, the fact that you need a negative test to come through at the airport and you need to, as soon as they put it in place at an expense of around $2,000 quarantine for three days at a government-sanctioned uh, hotel while they wait for your results. If, if you're going across a land border, you also need a test now, but it, it's going to be a fine if you don't have one. And uh, it, the explanation I heard, I think, is pretty wacky. They can't throw you out because you're already in Canada. Well, um, what's the point of having a border crossing if uh, the people at the border can't forbid you from entering? That's my question. The numbers to call 
416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm also going to want to get to now snowbirds who have done a lot to circumvent uh, uh, rules and suggestions from the government are now complaining about these new rules. So people, uh, what do you think of that? Do they have a good case. And Marty, um, what are your clients telling you about these new rules? They're basically telling me they're not coming back and entertain them. They are looking for extensions, the ones who are away, of course, to stay longer until the restrictions ultimately are lifted. And then, of course, the land border without having the three-day hotel quarantine is now giving them an opportunity to suggest that they drive home, fly to a Buffalo and rent a car and go over that way. So I can tell you, they basically are against any sort of three-day hotel quarantine at this point. Well, I, that's what I was thinking, because I, I remember that at first they closed off the land borders, and then people were uh, scrambling to take airplanes. And now the opposite's going to happen, that that people are going to, uh, uh, you know, fly into Buffalo or something and, and rent a car and drive across, because that's easier. Exactly. Uh, and do you have uh, requests? Are, are there car rentals in Buffalo or wherever? Are they? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not in that, that business, but I can tell you the majority of my requests are we'd like to extend our current stay until such time the restrictions are lifted. If I had to summarize it, that's what I'm getting right now. Um, yeah, Carl Moore, what, what do you think of the fact that it's, it's just not the same at a land border and uh, at an airline? Well, I've come to the, I mean, I've crossed the border many times. Montreal's not far from the state, so I drive down to Boston and New York. Um, you can, they can turn you back. Like, you're not allowed in Canada because you haven't got this. Go get it. Seems like a fairly clear statement that people would understand. And I would uh, support that sort of thing. You know, I teach a bit in the medical school and talk to some of the medical people at McGill. And, and it's something where this is a healthcare issue. I'm tired of being in, my house for, you know, other than an hour a day for months on end, let's lean in and actually follow the rules. And, you know, our family's got to be up. My wife teaches grade one. I'm at McGill, our daughter, and son at university. We don't get to go to Florida. Like, come on, a certain degree, grow up, accept that this is a tough circumstance and lean into it a bit. Yeah. yeah. Do, do any of you know, I I heard the prime minister yesterday and, and frankly, I was baffled because at the land border, if you don't have your test, they'll give you a fine. And he said, we can't turn people back because the, the border crossing is already on Canadian soil. I'm sorry. I don't understand that. Does, do any of you understand this explanation? It might be a U.S. thing, and that's fair enough, because it's their country. But to a rich person, a thousand bucks is neither here nor there. It is to the rest of us schmucks. But it's, it's no big deal. <laughs> it's up to fine to and move on. Um, but that's a health risk to the rest of us Canadians. Okay. I, I very much agree with Carl on the second statement about the health risk and and uh, having kind of separate standards, one for people who come in by plane and one who come by land, does raise a concern. After all, the risk of infection should be the same. Um, so. There, I certainly would welcome seeing similar restrictions as currently exists for people coming up by air, also implemented at the at the uh, land crossings. Although the question is how how many they are, there are, uh, but in terms of a legal argument of people on Canadian soil, that that brings in the charter issue. And generally, under the charter, Canadians do have a, a constitutional right to enter Canada. There is no right to right away beeline home, and certainly under uh, warranted reasons. Uh, Placing people in quarantine is reasonable and, and lawful, but uh, that that still provides them a right to come back and be on Canadian soil because they are citizens. Okay, I would like to read part of an email that I got this morning from a snowbird. And uh, people out there, I'd also like to know what you think. So uh, this is somebody who went to Florida, and I know they went to a lot of extra expense to be ready to go to Florida as soon as they got uh, the vaccination appointment. And uh, they are going to be receiving their second shots in a week or so. And here's what it said. Once complete, we will receive a vaccination certificate of our Pfizer shots. 
My question is, upon returning to Canada, does this not nullify the need to absorb the cost of three days in a hotel waiting for the test result? Um, we will have had a negative test result 72 hours pri- prior to flying back to Toronto. We will certainly comply with 14 days of quarantine. However, I find the COVID test and three-day wait in a hotel at a cost of 4000 that's for two people, punitive and unfair since we will be vaccinated against the disease. So uh, that, that, that is based on actually a misunderstanding of what a vaccine can, cannot do. A vaccine is likely to keep you away from, from dying, quite possibly from hospitalization. It may somewhat, by a certain percentage, reduce how infectious you can be, how many people you can infect if you get infected. But it is not a perfect, complete proof for ever getting infected or transmitting it. And one of the concerns that the reason that those measures were put in place was because there are variants out there that are very strongly uh, infection, contagious. They're more contagious than the usual uh, run-of-the-mill COVID-19. And uh, with those, even one case could be too many. It could very quickly, because of the exponential growth, overwhelm the healthcare system. Well, uh, you know, in, in that case, uh, you know, people are quarantining. Uh, I don't know. It just struck me that, uh, you know, uh, that the people were warned, were they not, Marty? They what to not travel, of course. To not, tra- I mean, what what do you make of of that? Uh, well, it depends what hat you want to wear. Who's kidding? Who? I guess the only support I can give them, if any, is they are property owners. They are going down there. They believe they're bubbling as well down there as they would up here. They are social distancing. They are wearing masks, and so they don't think that, as themselves as vacationers and sipping margaritas on the beach. That's their rationale. Why? They are being careful and they should be able to come back, especially in their minds with the vaccine, which I agree uh, with your other guests that that does not prevent the problem still. So this three-day quarantine is going to be a real problem for sure. No question. Well, yeah, I just think, you know, the, the government said, don't go. And they went. And, and no argument. And, and they saying. went, and they went, uh, you know, and they, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, they spent a lot of money and, uh, you know, really made a lot of effort to go. And frankly, I don't really blame anybody who went to get a vaccine because it's going to be a long time before we get anything here. Uh, and uh, it'll also take some pressure off our supply. But um, to then be complaining about this stuff when you were warned, I don't know. Carl, do you have a view? Yeah, I guess I'm a bit har- harder nose in the sense that, you know, they were warned about it. You took the risk and it, it you know, you understood the risk and it uh, went the way you weren't hoping to. But say, uh, la vie. And I'm glad you got the vaccine and that's helpful. Takes a little pressure off Canada, but you have to live with the consequence. But on the other hand, being in Florida, when I'm, you know, have a couple feet of snow in my backyard, it, it's not the worst things in the world. Yeah, I'll say. And and it's interesting that in the U.S. too, um, I'm just looking at a list of the most popular uh, flight legs. And the most popular one is Orlando to San Juan in Puerto Rico. And I guess there's no quarantine requirement when you land in San Juan, which is also part of the States, actually. Uh, and also these these other legs. So uh, even Americans are are um, you know looking for that. But I don't know where that leaves Canadians. It, it's interesting, Marty, that you said that you think that this uh, three day thing is tamping down, and the and the test before and after is really uh, going to put a lid on March break. Oh, for sure. A one-week trip just cannot make any sense to anybody now, especially if you have to quarantine 14 days after with a three-day hotel stay in there first. It's it's nobody who thought they'd get away with a family. And by the way, a family of five times 2,000, if in fact that's $10,000. Like, that, that's mind-boggling. That has to happen. Yeah, I didn't realize it was $2,000 per person if you're sharing a room, but... Well, we don't know. And yeah. even if you look at that submission yesterday to the hotels to put in their, their suggestions, nowhere in there on the surface to us does it show what are you going to get paid for all these services? Like, why would they do the three online meals, the Wi-Fi, the oldest, and everything? No one said, are you going to, we're going to pay you 2000 per person that comes into your place. That's really left blank right now at this point, too. Well, I would imagine that uh, there's a little wiggle room in, in that number. Um, to me, the whole thing is intended 
as a deterrent. So, um, so what we're left with is uh, just a lot, probably a lot of snowbirds who will be staying in Florida longer than they normally would. Exactly. Which I guess is not a huge problem. Uh, Carl Moore, what do you expect to happen on the airline front? I mean, uh, you know, uh, with all of the layoffs and the shutdowns or, or temporary cancellation of routes, you know, I'm thinking one day when we're able to travel again, you know, what? how are we going to get there? Well, something where it's just going to get even worse, probably, just as more flights are canceled. And are we at the lowest point? Probably not, but we'll hopefully be close to the lowest point. And the question is, will Air Canada, WestJet, Transat, Porter, will they all survive and continue to serve Canada? And it may not be that they all survive. So we're going to see less competition, which is not good. But we need the airline industry in this country. We just can't survive without it. It's important for our economy and for our families and things like that. So I think the government will come to terms with that. They'll come to terms with Gabor's right concerns about vouchers and things like that. And hopefully they'll sort that out in the next week or two would be my uh, my hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabor, um, where do passengers stand in all of this? I mean, the airlines obviously know that the country needs airlines. The country needs airlines, but I'm far from being sure the country needs those airlines specifically. Uh, just Today, I was opening the news and I saw that Flair Airlines began to uh, uh, expand to the Maritimes, areas from which other airlines withdrew from. So I, I'm, I would be quite uh, inclined to believe the theory of a, of a phoenix bird, that from the ashes of, of old airlines, new airlines may come, because the trained personnel, the flight attendants, the pilots remain here. They don't go anywhere. And they are... In my view, it is the airline employees, the aviation workers who are the assets to the country, not the airlines. Once you have the trained staff um, and, and, you know, setting up a new airline doesn't take that much effort compared to training your staff. So I would make every effort to keep the, the skill, to upkeep that. Uh, but um, as airlines that can stand in, in the public and try to justify stealing the public's money, I think as such airlines as corporate cultures should not necessarily survive and perhaps be displaced by New airlines that do understand that if you want to survive in this world, you first and foremost have to treat your consumers well. Demand is going to be back, and the question is whether there will be a demand for those specific airlines, and I would say probably not. Okay, and Marty, what would you like to leave us with? That uh, My clientele from this perspective are, are totally against all these this uh, restrictions, or at least the hotel one seems to be the one that's really a thorn at this point. And they have to be very concerned about staying out of the country too long, because, of course, we have some restrictions with respect to OHIP and U.S. tax filing. So that's become a big thing to discuss another time, probably. Yeah. So uh, just to uh, that's a very important point. You you can't be out more than, I think, 180 days, six months for OHIP coverage. Ontario is actually 212. So, um that's a problem if they're going to be longer than that. And in the in U.S. could could um, cause a tax filing if it was 182 days that you were there based on some formula they have. Okay. Uh, you're right. That is a good topic for another day. And in the meantime, thank you so much, Martin Firestone, Dr. Carl Moore, and Gabor Lukat. Thank you. Thank you very much thank for having you. me. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about SERP forgiveness. So remember hundreds of thousands of tax filers who were not entitled to serve, but filed for it and got it, were told that, hey, you're going to have to pay it back. Well, yesterday, the government changed its mind about that. So uh, what do you think of that? Uh, and is it fair for all the people uh, who made sure they were entitled? The numbers to call before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, you'll recall back uh, uh, in the early days of the CERB, there were a bunch of people who collected the money who may not have been eligible for it. Um, So they were 
told that they would have to repay federal emergency COVID-19 benefits, but they are going to get to keep the money after all. And these are self-employed Canadians who applied for CERB based on their gross income instead of their net. And it affects about 450,000 people, including many Zoomers who make extra money by doing a bit of work. The government admitted that it gave confusing information early on as to whether the threshold was $5,000 gross or $5,000 net. And so earlier this year, it sent them those letters saying, ah, you might have to pay this money back. The maximum was $14,000 each. And I guess the concern is that if these people didn't have the right qualification, the CERB was paying them way more than they would have otherwise made. So some people have already paid this back and those taxpayers are going to get that money refunded. So it begs the question, what about those people who actually understood and obeyed the rules correctly and never applied for that money. I would like to know what you think. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Aaron Woodrick, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing, Libby? Fine. How are you? We're doing okay. Okay. So uh, what is your take on this? Well, this is a tough one, Libby, because on the one hand, look, if someone applied for this um, and knew they weren't eligible and defrauded the system, I say throw the book at them. I say they have to pay it back. I say they know what they were doing um, and they should face the full consequences of the law. On the other hand, if someone was genuinely unclear, they called up the government and said, am I eligible for this? And the government said they were. Um, it becomes a lot harder to argue that they did something wrong here. So the government screwed this up. Um, and unfortunately, that means the rest of us are stuck paying the bill for it because of their mistake. Uh, now, the minister, Carla Qualtro, said in the past that uh, everything is based on your net income when it comes to taxes. So is that a reasonable argument? Yeah, again, the, the, I put the fault at the feet of the government on this. If you call the government and ask them for clarification about a program, and they give you an answer, you should be able to rely on that answer. And the problem here is that people have not been able to rely on it. Um, you know, it is difficult for someone to, to tell someone you have to pay that back when they say, well, I wasn't sure. I asked them and they told me I was eligible. Um, and I mean, you can debate whether or not the government should have set that particular criteria in the first place. After all, if you're trying to replace income for someone who made $5,000, why do they need 14000 I think that's the more obvious question. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whether or not they have to pay any back, I think there's a moral imperative, too. The question is whether legally the government can tell them to, even after telling them in the first place, no, you know, you're eligible for this program. Uh, why do you think they changed their minds? Yeah, I think the government realized that it was going to be a nightmare to collect on a lot of this debt. Um, I think they could have maybe found some middle ground. For example, you pay some of it back, you pay it back without interest, we give you a while to pay it back. Um, you pay back a certain amount depending on what your actual uh, net income was. But they took the easy route. Um, you know, under normal circumstances, I think this would be a massive boondoggle. The circumstance, though, is that we're in the pandemic. And the whole reason this program was a blunt instrument is that they rolled it out in a matter of weeks. I mean, under normal circumstances, you would never design a program this big um, that quickly for precisely this reason. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's very unfortunate. It's going to co- costing taxpayers billions, I'm sure. Um, but it's hard to come up with the perfect solution, you know, uh, you know, without having a time machine to go back and fix it. Uh, yeah, I mean, so first of all, I have to say credit where credit is due. I mean, it's a good thing that the government helped people out before they got into a really dire circumstance. And when we look at what happened in the United States, uh, you know, I think that we can give them credit for that. But uh, this does seem like a bit of a boondoggle. And one of the things I'm wondering about, you know, one of the things that we saw with a lot of the programs is they'd give something uh, to some group, and then immediately there'd be somebody else with their handout. Do you see this 
leading to either resentment or to demands for some kind of parity with uh, some other people who are disadvantaged by this? Yep. Well, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, as you mentioned off the top, there are going to be people who resent the fact that they played by the rules and didn't take the money. And as a result, they don't get 14000 whereas these people did. And there's going to be multiple cases of that on multiple programs. And, and I don't have an easy answer to those things because, again, this was a situation where they had a gun to their head and it was a choice of getting the money out the door fast or taking forever in order to make it perfectly targeted. And I, I think a lot of people would have had difficulty had that been the case. So my approach to this has been, and I think a lot of Canadians take this view too, you know, Early on, we're willing to cut them a lot of slack, but as they go along, and this is why I have called for changes and improvements to these programs as the pandemic has progressed, as they've had time to fix them, they should fix them, plug the holes, close the loopholes, get back the money you can, with not demanding that they be perfect, but demanding they recognize, you know, they obviously didn't get it perfect at the outset, and they have a lot of fixing up to do as they go along. Okay, I'd like to give the numbers out. I'd like to hear from people. Do you think this is the fair thing to do? Uh, do you think uh, maybe you played by the rules and you didn't get this money and now you're scratching your head wondering, well, why did I do that? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And again, the government changed its mind. It sent letters earlier, I think it was back in the spring, to uh, uh, 441,000 people who received CERB uh, who were not eligible for it because they used their gross rather than their net income. And uh, when you do the numbers, it's easy to see what the problem is. So if you made $5,000 gross, you know, by the time you paid your expenses, uh, that would be a very small amount of income that you would have declared. And if this is an income replacement program, uh, you would have collected $14,000 to replace, you know, maybe 3000 something like that. To a lot of people, that doesn't seem fair if we're picking up the tab for that. But what do you think? The government messed up and now, now they're telling people it's okay, keep the cash. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's hear from Joan in North York. Hi, Joan. Hi. I'm glad I could get through. Because I'm looking with what Trudeau's doing right now with the traveling, changing his mind or not putting up, like he didn't think about what to do at the beginning. And with this tax grab some people are getting, it's, he's politicking. He wants to have a, an election soon and he'll figure the people will like him because he was so good to the ones that were more dishonest. So that's my take on it. He's, yeah, well, I, I'm sure there might be a little bit of that. There always is with everything. Joan, thanks for that. Okay, well, anyway. Okay, let's go to George in Brampton. Hi, George. Hello. Yes, uh, as I was to- telling your uh, receptionist, whatever you call them, uh, I live in Brampton. I'm on welfare, and I received a phone call on my landlord's telephone from the welfare office, and the man was very insistent that I apply for CERB. And I told him, I don't qualify. I didn't earn $5,000. And he insisted, go go ahead, apply for it. He gave me a website to go to, and he told me to use my welfare number to apply for it. Wow. Uh, that sounds really messed up. Um, messed up. I'm, I'm going to ask Aaron if he's heard of anything like that. But, George, thanks for telling us about it. I'm assuming you did not. That's right. I didn't, but I, I've met a lot of people, like homeless people and other welfare recipients who did apply for it. Hmm. Now, I know of one case where a man uh, got it and he drank himself to death. He stopped eating and just drank himself to death. That's terrible. Um, yeah, I think that was the whole intention was to kill people, actually. Oh, that's, I, I can't imagine that, but you've yeah. got to wonder... You've got to wonder how that happened. Thanks for that. Uh, Aaron, have you heard of anything like that? People on, on welfare being told to apply for CERB? Yeah, and in that case that George mentioned, that's obviously a sad, very sad, unintended consequence. Look, I, there is always going to be some fraud. I, uh, what I had expected and demanded of the government in this case is where they have any evidence that there's fraud, that they follow up on it. That's all. I'm not suggesting that they can catch every case before it happens. But if you find evidence, if people are calling in and saying they have proof 
or there's something suspicious on these applications, the government should follow up. It's just, it's, it's, if you break a law, you, we expect that those laws will be enforced. And I think Canadians are fine with helping people who actually need it. But if you don't qualify, they expect that the government's going to crack down on that. Okay, I'm going to take one more call very quickly. Tom and Ajax. Hi, Tom. Hi. Um, the timing of this, to me, I think makes things a little simpler for the explanation. Uh, in the win- uh, weekend, it was announced that now the federal government's and the prime minister's ratings are down to virtually a, in a tie with the conservatives. So it's the prime minister gets out there and says, uh, okay, no, no, I'm not the bad guy after coming after you for this money back. I'm the nice guy staring lovingly at my own reflection in the camera lens telling you I'm a nice guy. You can keep the money. It's okay. And he's just seems to me it's convenient timing trying to get the numbers back up by throwing okay. money back at people. Okay, Tom, thank you for that. Okay. Okay, yeah, we're uh, out of time. Overtime, Aaron, 20 seconds. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I just say it's always been a problem with politicians who want to spend our money and take credit for it. And it's been way worse during the pandemic because they're spending far more. And it's beginning it's quite a deep hole. Okay. Thank you so much, Aaron Woodbrick. Aaron Woodrick, I'm sorry. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Liz. Okay. Okay, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we will be talking to the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. He has a very bold plan for the election, and it has to do with the devastation in long-term care, which is one of our main issues here on Fight Back. We will have more with Jagmeet Singh when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now I'd like to welcome NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who has made a very bold move. It's a major election promise, although it is extremely early for that kind of thing. And it stems for the, from the terrible death and devastation we have experienced in long-term care since the pandemic began. His plan is to abolish for-profit nursing homes. He has a 10-year timeline to accomplish that. He'll be addressing CARP's annual general meeting tomorrow, and he joins me now. Mr. Singh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, ma'am. An honor to be on the phone with you. Okay, well, uh, so what made you decide to go ahead with this plan? Well, you touched on it, but when we look at COVID-19, it is it has impacted all of us in some way. We know people who have lost their jobs or people have, have lost their businesses. We know that it has been extremely hard on families with kids. It's been hard on teachers, on workers. It's been hard on so many people, education workers. But of everyone that's been impacted by COVID-19, what is the most heartbreaking is how COVID-19 has impacted our seniors and how seniors particularly those living in long-term care, have borne the brunt of this pandemic. And what we saw and what we learned from this pandemic is that for-profit homes were where we found the worst conditions. Seniors were in the worst conditions. They were the highest rates of infection and the highest deaths. And I want to do something about it. And I don't want this to just be a pandemic response. I feel like these problems we know have been around for so long, we need to act now to fix long-term care, and we've got a plan to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it is true that the worst cases are with for-profit homes, but uh, a lot of people say that it's it's not the for-profit part, that it's simplistic to look at it that way, that the problem is that for the most part, they are the older homes where you have multiple people in a room. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I say the evidence is, the evidence is really clear that uh, even if there's multiple people in a home, when you've got the right levels of staffing, you can keep people safe. So what we found uh, very clearly is for-profit homes are where corners are cut to make a profit. Staffing is cut. The quality of food is cut. And when the goal is to put people or to put profit ahead of people, people suffer. And for-profit, the model inherently is flawed. We've got some for-profit homes that took public help, Sienna, and extended care took public money to to deal with the pandemic and then turned around and paid out dividends, millions of dollars to the shareholders. The flaw is when you're looking at profit in a system that's supposed to care for the vulnerable, corners are cut and seniors can't raise their voice many times. These are folks that are dealing with dementia and other challenges. 
we have people that are vulnerable and they're getting exploited for money and it is wrong. Uh, when you put that to people who are for profit care. So the first thing they say is, where would you put all those people uh, if, if you change the model? And, and they, what they always point out is that if you have, whether it's for profit or not for profit, uh, those homes are governed by the same regulations and they get the same amount of money from the government. So the treatment should be the same. If they get, you know, say they get $50 per person, whether they're for profit or not, that's what they get. What, what What's your answer to that? Well, one of the big things is, is when you're sending money to a for-profit home, some of that money is going to make it into the pockets of shareholders or to enrich somebody. When you're talking about not-for-profit or you're talking about public, all of the money is going towards care. And that's one of the biggest problems. For-profit inherently has to factor in some profit, which means that all the money is not going to care that should be going towards care. And that is why it's inherently flawed. That's why for-profit care is problematic in any healthcare. That's why we got rid of for-profit because it's more costly, it's more expensive, and it hurts people. But particularly when we're talking about vulnerable seniors, for-profit means all the money is not going towards the care of these seniors. Some of the money ends up going towards profit. And that is, that is just outrageous. In the pandemic, we knew that the for-profit homes continued to pay out dividends, continued to put out uh, put money towards profit instead of putting it towards PPE or putting it towards caring for people. And some of the stories that we heard when the military came into the for-profit homes, they found used syringes were being used, uh, were being reused. Syringes were being reused on patients, on residents. That medication was expired. That there was this culture of fear, like we can't use certain equipment because it's going to cost, and it's going to mean that we we are going to be penalized for that. I spoke with workers who said, in for-profit homes, we think twice about using protective equipment because there is this fear of of cost. Whereas for uh, in a not-for-profit or a public home, the goal should be do whatever is necessary to keep people safe, and that's a problem. A couple of things. So uh, I just want to point out uh, that there were some not-for-profit homes that are not doing that well either. But um, your biggest obstacle, I would think, in accomplishing this is that healthcare is a, a provincial, uh, you know, it's a provincial jurisdiction, and there are provinces and provincial premiers who even oppose the idea of. A national standard, let alone uh, putting putting this into national healthcare. Uh, how do you? How would you tackle that? Well, it's much of the same problem that we were up against when we first brought in when New Democrats and Tommy Douglas first brought in the vision of universal healthcare. It started off in Saskatchewan, he's the first province to make it happen, and thought, why is it that anyone in Canada can't get the healthcare they need? And so the vision was, let's make this national. And it took national leadership to bring it into other provinces. The Canada Health Act is one of the foundations, the pillars that brought in universal health care. So at this point, looking at what's going on, seeing our seniors suffer in long-term care, I believe we need to show leadership. And I don't believe that jurisdiction should be an excuse. We need to work within the parameters, of course, of jurisdiction. But we can show leadership at the federal level and say, let's establish what are the best practices, what has worked in this pandemic, and what has failed. Let's establish those best practices, and let's let's use the same principles that provinces already agree with, the Canada Health Act, and apply that say those same principles to long-term care and to home care so that we can lift up the quality of care that our seniors and residents of long-term care receive. And let's show leadership so that we can improve once and for all the horrible conditions that seniors face when they go to long-term care. I believe that we need to act and we need to do everything we can to protect seniors. And have you costed this? Yes, we've looked at uh, our plan in terms of getting rid of profit and improving the quality of care. We're committing $5 billion uh, over the next uh, number of years. We're also uh, indicating that Rivera, which is the second largest provider of long-term yep. care, is currently owned by a federal agency, effectively owned by the federal government. We want to make that public immediately. That's something the federal government could do. And we look at this in terms of budgets are always choices. Like, Where do we choose to put our money? Do we put it towards tax cuts that continue to enrich the wealthiest companies? Or do we make the choice to invest in our seniors who deserve to live their lives with dignity and respect? I choose respecting our, our seniors. 
Well, it, it, the Rivera thing is is quite ironic because it's it's the pension fund for union members right? so that ironic. owns it, and which is uh, mildly, uh, I guess, funny might be the wrong word, but it's very ironic. It is indeed, and what's even worse is that the, the workers themselves and the the president representing those workers have all said we don't want this in our portfolio, given the clear evidence how for profit is has harmed seniors. We want this to become public. So they've made it really clear the federal government could do it. They bought a pipeline and made a pipeline public. They nationalized the pipeline. Um, and whether that's actually going to create jobs or not, and its impact on the environment, uh, looks like that was a very bad decision. And now we've got an opportunity to make a good decision. Let's make sure Rivera becomes public and we care for our seniors, put people in front of profits, not the other way around. And that's one step in towards the goal of abolishing all for-profit in long-term care. Yeah, we we actually talked to the union. I think it was just a week ago. Um, yeah, so um, we are starting to run out of time. So, uh, you know, how do you think you accomplish this, that you, you know, um, have a transition, you know, so that prof- for-profit exits the business? I mean, is there compensation? It, it just seems like a very complicated undertaking. It is, but it's very much the same type of undertaking when we tried to get rid of private hospitals. There were private hospitals operating in Canada when we brought in Universal Medicare. That was also a challenge. It's a challenge, but it's worth fighting. And uh, there are a number of tactics. We, we, in our plan, laid out having a task force evaluate the best way to do it. Some of the ideas include, include putting a moratorium that no new bets can be for-profit. They have to be not-for-profit. Uh, we need to invest massively in, in long-term care and invest in our healthcare system broadly. Uh, so there's a number of steps we can take. We just need to get behind this idea. The evidence makes it clear for-profit has been demonstrably and clearly evidence-based worse. We need to now acknowledge that and then do something about it, which is to remove that profit. We've got a plan to do so. Okay, and uh, we look forward to hearing you speak to CARP's annual general meeting uh, tomorrow. And um, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, my honor. And I'm excited about speaking with uh, the membership tomorrow. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, as you said, tomorrow, CARP's annual general meeting, Jagmeet Singh will be talking to the meeting about his plan. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.